When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask of you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph then said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt, along with all his father's family. He lived a hundred and ten years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Mecca, son of Manasseh, were placed at board on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of the land to the land he promised and owed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Well, let's study this passage in Genesis 50 together just now. But before we do, let's pause to pray, and I'd like to lead us using a favourite pre-sermon prayer of uh, Derek Primes. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. For years, I had a daydream in my head. Uh, I used to replay it every time I went home or even drove through my hometown. It was a daydream about what I'd like to do if I ever met a guy who once caused me a great deal of upset in my life. I, I knew what I would say. I had rehearsed those lines a million times and I knew what I would do. I had rehearsed those moves a million times. It was a daydream essentially about revenge. Now, I guess we've all had them. Uh, daydreams of payback. Now, when I became a Christian, I realised that I needed to shake myself awake from those daydreams. Uh, we all do. Because revenge isn't as sweet as people dream. Uh, revenge is not the great equaliser and in fact it's a great idolatry um, and nowhere do we uh, nowhere near as sweet as forgiveness in terms of gospel fruit either and this is what we find in this passage of Genesis 50 today this is the last episode in Joseph's life and in Genesis too actually and Genesis 50 opened up with the news that Jacob had died and he was given a state funeral. The whole of Egypt mourned with Joseph. But chapter 50 continues with the news that his sons are afraid. They're worried that Joseph has been secretly daydreaming some Liam Neeson style payback of his own uh, for hurting them so much. Now he, Joseph had already forgiven them. We saw that in chapter 45. 
But I guess in this occasion, seeing both Joseph's emotion at his dad's death and seeing Joseph's power in Egypt's co-warning, they might think, well, this could trigger revenge. So in verse 16, in our passage, they send a message to him saying it came from Jacob, saying, Dad said, forgive us for all the wrongs that we've done for treating you so badly. How does Joseph respond? Well, he graciously reassures them that he is not daydreaming revenge in the slightest and they don't need to be afraid. And the reasons he gives are two, two God-centred, wonderful reasons why. One, God alone is competent to judge. And two, God intends all things for good. So number one, only God is competent to judge. Look with me at verse 19. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Well, as you see from the, the, the section here, the main reason Joseph gives for the forgiveness and the grace that he extends to his brothers is that he sees God's saving hand at work. But before he gets to that, he makes this very important uh, God-exalting doctrinal point. And it's this, righting wrongs is God's business. Righting wrongs is God's business. And he tells us, well, really two reasons why. God alone has the knowledge to judge. Um, we know that we're not all seeing. He is, though. Uh, he even knows the thoughts and the inclinations of our hearts. Uh, we're not all knowing. He is. There is nothing that God does not know and nothing new for God to learn. But also, God alone has the right to judge. And this seems to be what Joseph is pushing at here. Um, and we know that too. We didn't make this world. He did. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We don't have authority to judge. He does. Uh, we don't run the world uh, in righteousness, but he does. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Uh, we don't set the moral standards by which this world is judged. Uh, he does. And that's what we see uh, throughout God's word. Uh, again and again, it tells us this. Uh, I guess... Um, Romans chapter uh, 12 verses 17 and 19 tell us this where it says do not repay anyone evil for evil be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone do not take revenge my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord not us he alone is the judge he alone judges justly. That's the belief that undergirds everything that Joseph's doing. That He knew that and happily therefore left the righting of his wrongs to God. Now whether the brother's sorrow was genuine or not, he just said, I have no intention to harm you and I only intend to bless you. Now that's important for us to learn because it can be so tempting to put ourselves to sit in God's seat and play God. But playing God is at the heart of all our problems when we judge. Sitting in God's seat in judgment over others in response to personal hurt will only lead to these kinds of daydreams that we have and the kind of unforgiveness that ultimately leads, well, to a poor witness. And so the lesson is simple. Get out of God's seat. It's just too big for you. Uh, give God his rightful place. Let's entrust ourselves to him who judges justly and who does all things, and I mean all things well. 
It's when we act like this that we truly commend the gospel. The gospel that says, who are you, essentially? I mean, while we were God's enemies, Romans 5 says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We needed him to bless us and not to harm us. And uh, we read elsewhere that God did not treat us as our sins deserve. So that's how we should treat others. And I guess this is how we live out the gospel. Jesus himself said explicitly, uh, love your enemies, bless and do not curse. And again, uh, be merciful just as your father in heaven is merciful. Isn't that what we see Joseph doing here? And isn't it glorious and beautiful? Maybe if we were unwilling to do that, then payback might still be on our minds, unforgiveness and bitterness still in our hearts. But if we do, God will be praised because of us, just as he was through Joseph and the mercy he extended to his sinful brothers. So God is competent to judge. That is the first reason why Joseph encourages his brothers not to be afraid. The second, God intends all things for good. And we see this again in verse 20 of chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Just as right and wrongs is God's business, doing good is God's business. It is entirely consistent with his character. In his nature, in his activity, in his providence, he is good, always good. And strange as it may seem, he works good, even through the acts of evil men. And he's and that's an important thing. He's not afraid to call them evil. The Bible doesn't shy away from that. People are responsible for their own sins. Joseph doesn't shy away from this with his own brothers either. Actually, he calls his brothers out for their evil in this reassurance. He didn't downplay it. He didn't excuse it. He didn't say, oh, do you know what? Uh, God made a lot of good things happen in the end. So no worries about your hateful, grievous bodily harm and your human trafficking and your cold-hearted deceit to my dad, telling him that I was dead when really I was alive for a good couple of decades. I mean, what is a couple of decades of slavery in the grand scheme of things? No big deal. No, of course he didn't say that. He called their actions what they were. Evil. In fact, intentional evil. Now that's what we should do with sin. We can't downplay it. We shouldn't downplay it. It's not a whoops or a mistake. It's not to be excused or downplayed. It's never accidental. It's willful at heart level. And it's serious, harmful to those we sin against, but most importantly, offensive against the God to whom we give an account. Everything about what Joseph says here suggests his experience was hard that their evil had consequences. I mean, life changed dramatically for Joseph. He went from favourite son to soldier slave, missing his family, missing out on all the different experiences. And then Joseph, of course, in verse 17, when, when, when the brothers actually sent that first message to him saying, are we okay? You read, Joseph wept. Of course he did. I mean, forgiveness changes how we act towards those who've hurt us, but it doesn't take away from the pain that we felt or even the memories of it. Uh, you don't have to forget how painful our experiences have been in order to forgive someone who caused that pain. But that said, Joseph proves that even hurt doesn't need to get in the way of extending grace to people. That's what forgiveness is all about. That's what God's shown us. But what makes all the difference 
is trusting that in all things, God really does work for the good of those who love him. That's what Joseph makes clear. He says, don't be afraid. I know what you guys have done, but I can see what God has done. And who knows where we'd be if he hadn't worked out his sovereign will. Joseph magnifies God's good purposes. God saved millions through the evil act of Joseph's brothers. Now we're not told how Joseph came to see this, but he discerns how God's impeccable choreography was worked out in events both large, like being sold into slavery, and small, like the cupbearer, happening to be at Pharaoh's side when Pharaoh said, uh, is there no one in Egypt who can tell me what these dreams means just at that point so that he could say, Joseph. And everything changed. Now we can see that. We can see it in Genesis. Joseph saw it. God was in the detail and working goods. And what Joseph does then in this this one sentence, he magnifies God's providential working. In one sentence, uh, you have an ocean of theology and insight into God himself. And the wording, of course, from Joseph is very, very careful. It's vital, vital to note, really, what it doesn't say as much as what it does say. So Joseph doesn't say, uh, you guys did something really bad, but God intervened afterwards to make sure I was okay and everything turned out all right in the end. No, that would make God a mere spectator in, the li in life. And that's totally inconsistent with what the Bible says. The Bible says the opposite. He's intricately involved in all things from kings to watercourses to sparrows. And he doesn't say... Uh, you guys caught God off guard and surprised him and nearly ruined what he'd hoped. He really didn't see what was coming and nearly scuppered the plans to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. No, that would make God subject to chance. And the Bible says the opposite. There is nothing out with God's control. So no, Joseph here is crystal clear. There is one act of evil, but there were two intentions. One, the brothers intending evil, and two, the Lord intending good. Oh, I wish I had longer to talk about this more, but essentially they intended to get rid of Joseph. But God intended to save Joseph, to save his brothers, and along with them, millions of others. Not to forget, of course, the preservation of the promise, the lineage of Abraham, through whom would come the Messiah, and our salvation. Now, this is not the only time we see this in the Bible. There are tons of them, but I guess none as beautiful or as clear as Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, we see uh, concerning Jesus Christ that, uh, like Joseph, he was a subject, uh, of, uh, subject to the sinful intentions of wicked men. As Acts 4.27 says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, so everybody, in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they're just like the brothers. But as it was in Joseph's story, God intended the same evil act to bring about the world's greatest good, the salvation of the world. Where in verse 28 it says, they, all those people, did 
what your power and your will had decided beforehand would happen. Oh, it's beautiful and it's clear. Now, if you're here today, uh, here today, <laughs> if you're watching today and uh, you're not a Christian, I'd love you to see why we keep coming back to this cross like this, because Jesus suffered at the hands of evil, essentially, so that you might be blessed with the greatest good, the knowledge of God that leads to salvation, forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt and shame, eternal life in his name. Now, what that requires is really to do what Joseph did with the brother's sin, not to downplay it or excuse it, but to confess it, to be honest about it before God and ask him for forgiveness. That's what you should do. If you've got any questions about this, we'd love for you to get in touch with us. Brothers and sisters in the church family, well, what do we see here? Joseph saw God's providence in all that had happened, working good through evil acts against him, and that changed how he lived. And I want to appeal to all of us to see that seeing things from God's perspective ought to change how we live too. Seeing what God is doing in and through our trials, trusting that he intends good, oh, it transforms us. You know, God is working good in all things, even in this coronavirus pandemic. What are we experiencing? We're experiencing the effects of the fall. Disease and death brought in when sin entered the world. They threaten us. But what possible good might come of this trial and this hardship, this lockdown, this anxiety, this death? Well, I guess people might be shaken from their godless slumber to see that everything's not all right in the world or in their hearts and so come to Christ. We pray that it might shake people awake from their materialism and their idolatry. It may well help people think about their own mortality and what comes after death and so turn to Jesus who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me might live even though he dies. Or it might help us as a church family deepen our relationships and value the things that really recalibrate us to the gospel. Or we will suffer well if we're touched by the death that this virus brings, um, either personally or um, by knowing someone who is truly believing that we know in all things, even pandemics, God works for the good of those who love him. And of course we can see that God is working good in all our trials in all the ways we've been sinned against and hurt and afflicted in some ways, whether that's come as a result of ourselves and our own actions or as a result of other people. God's working for good in these things. I know it's hard to see that. It's hard to see it when we're in them, isn't it? I've been there. Many of you have too. We all have, I guess. But if we really trust that God's in control, that God's got this, that he's providential and working out a plan, then that really helps to settle us. It, it really helps us pray. It really helps us see what good can come through it by serving other people, ministering to others in the same way that God has ministered to us. And of course, it helps us proclaim Christ. I hope we see that in these times. How many of us can say that we that, that God has used something hard in our lives in order to bring others to know him. I mean, maybe we don't see that yet. 
maybe hardships have even had the opposite effect and driven people away from God because of what's happened to us or what they themselves have experienced. Friends, there's still time. It was, it took decades for the Joseph situation to find true resolution and meaning. Decades for Joseph to understand it. I guess though, as I said earlier, you're not allowed in God's seat, but you are invited to wear his glasses, proverbially speaking. View life from his perspective and let it have its transforming effect to the extent that it blesses others with forgiveness, yes, with the gospel, yes, with that encouragement, hope in God, yes, that's exactly what Joseph does right at the end of this passage. He promises not to harm, but to bless there and then and for the future. And in verse 24 of Genesis 50, he tells his family to hope in God. God who will surely come to your aid, as he says, and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they promised that on oath. And Joseph, interestingly, at the end of this passage, we are told that when he died, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Doesn't say he was placed in a tomb. The point is that his coffin stood for 400 years as a symbol to his people in their suffering of this oath that they had just made and of the way that God had worked in and through his life. It stood as a symbol to his people in the 400 years of struggle and strife and suffering to come to hope in God and in his promises. God's people could look to, strangely, a coffin for that. But we, we look to a cross and we look to an empty tomb, both working together to remind us of Christ's death and his resurrection, of his sovereign work and his grace of what he is working for us in these hard times while we wait, but what he prepares for us in the life to come. So we hope in God. Let's pray together. Our Father, throughout this book of Genesis, we have seen your magnificent glory from all that you have created to all that you have undertaken to care for and provide for and maintain your faithfulness to your people and to yourself and your promise. Oh Lord, on the face of it, we've seen sin have such terrible effects on people. We've seen sin seek to scupper this promise and it's been threatened all the way. The promise of a, a serpent crusher from Genesis 3, the promise of a a nation of blessing in Genesis 12 and on. But how we praise you that uh, despite what we see on the face of it, we see your hand hidden in plain sight. And once we've seen it, we can't not see it. Our prayer is that you would enable us to see this in our day, in our lives, in our circumstances, that we might put our hands in yours, trusting in your sovereignty and control, in your providence, and in your goodness to us, that we might live for you, be transformed by this hope, and trust in you. We pray this for each and every one of us, as we are apart, 
We're looking forward again to that day when we're together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.